Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. Midlife has a big, fat vocabulary problem. I'm not just talking about words like readers and ma'am, which keep popping up and can make you feel, you know, old. I'm talking about the entire way we define the process of aging, lumping people into boxes like boomer, Gen X, millennial, as if your birth year inextricably tethers you to a specific demo, and those are your people, period. I'm joined today by a woman who is shaking up our dated way of defining age. Gina Pell coined the term perennials to describe, quote, ever-blooming people of all ages, people who continue to push up against their growing edge, who are always relevant and not defined by their generation. Gina is both perennial number one, a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of The What, which is an addictive weekly newsletter surfacing what to have on your radar and a vibrant online community of over 100,000 perennial women. She's here today to talk about why age doesn't define us, but why the company you keep might. We'll also talk why online communities like The What are an antidote to the isolation of this never-ending pandemic. Plus, she'll share some of the what finds you don't want to miss. Welcome, Gina. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for joining me today from uh, Sausalito. Uh, as someone who writes for a living, I, I absolutely love the word perennials because who doesn't want to be ever blooming? Tell me why you coined this term and how you've you know managed to interject it into the zeitgeist. Well, it, it actually, it came out of frustration and anger, which is kind of funny. Um, I was pitching an idea to... Uh, to some a CMO in New York, and it's somebody that I I had known throughout my, my whole career. I started in digital marketing about twenty years ago, and she she asked after she heard our pitch, she said, "Is your media company focused solely on millennials?" And I said, "Well, no, we we really go after more of a mindset." And she said, "Well, our KPIs, our key performance indicators, are all geared towards millennials." For the next five years and if you're not solely focused on them then we can't do business with you anymore so i really frustrated i came back to, to san francisco and i wrote an article called meet the perennials I, a lot of why I, why I wrote the article and wanted to define a new moniker for a mindset and not a generation is because um i just thought if the top technology companies in the world they 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 target you based on your clicks, based on behavior. They don't target you based on your birth year. And why should we continue to think of ourselves as millennials or or Gen X or put ourselves in a box of age? So that that's kind of where it came from, coming up with with the concept of of perennials. Because I never, I myself have never seen the world through a lens of age, even when I was a child. So I. I always liked speaking to adults or people outside of my age group. And um, yeah, and so that's that's kind of where it came from. That was the that was the that was the catalyst that made me write the piece. And, and it really took off. I know, because it's been everywhere. I think I first saw it in Fast Company a few years ago and then mm-hmm. I, I learned more about you and your work and started following the what and you know, fell into the the rabbit hole of your newsletter, which is such a fun read every week because you share amazing, um, you know, finds things that we that we should know about. But you know, do you think that marketers have changed since you, you know, kind of put this, um, you know, term out there and, and then kind of helped reframe the fact that we're, we shouldn't be thought of as 
a specific generational cohort, but we could be thought about and advertised to and connected with and spoken to as people who have who have interest. Have you seen a change or is it still very rigid and focusing on, you know, millennial firsts or, or Gen Z? I think we're starting to see a change in marketing at, across the board, not just in terms of age, but also in terms of who they're featuring. So featuring more people of color, uh, different genders, you know, not just, not just male, female. Um, and certainly I see a lot more silver haired people in ads than I ever have seen before. So one of the first ads I noticed was Charlotte Tilbury. That's a makeup brand, a really a, a, an amazing makeup brand, actually. Charlotte Tilbury helped design a lot of Tom Ford's collection. And she's um, an English makeup company, high-end makeup. And she had a campaign that featured a, a woman who was probably between 50 and 60 years old next to a, a woman who was a model that was like 20 years old. And it was a everyone campaign. And I, you know, in the very beginning when I, so when I wrote this, this article, Meet the Perennials, and I really didn't think much when I was writing it, I was just thinking, you know, I'm frustrated. I'm going to, I'm going to write this little blog piece on Medium. I had no followers on Medium at the time. And I linked to it from my own newsletter. And then my, I, my husband linked to it from his, from his newsletter. He writes a, uh, he writes a newsletter on the news called Next Draft. And just was with our two newsletters linking to my little piece that had no likes, no followers. Fast Company picked it up right away. I got a call from an, an editor in Norway wow. who wanted to translate <laughs> the article in, in Norwegian and pay me for it. That's fabulous. <laughs> that was, I'm like, do you understand that nobody pays for content <laughs> in, in America? But sure, I'll take the check for $600. Nice. And I think I, think I struck a chord um, about this idea of relevance. So if we've been marketed to based on generation from, you know, from the beginning of marketing, I would say, you know, that if you're not in that golden age group of like 18 to 24, 24 to 35, um, then you're just out of the limelight and the media is not interested in you. Marketers are not interested in you. You, I've heard a lot of women say that it's such a relief to, to be in my fifties because I, I just don't get any attention anymore. I'm just, you know, I just kind of have disappeared. <laughs> wow. That's so wild. I mean, first of all, I don't well, understand. Disappear. Yeah. In, in, in a good or a bad way. <laughs> well, some women think in a good way that they don't get the attention that they're, they're out of the gaze, the male gaze, or just having to feel like they have to compete for eyeballs. Got it. Yeah, you know, I, I certainly don't feel that. I don't feel that way about, I just would love to, you know, disappear. <laughs> That's for sure. There's so many sexy women, like, over 50. Look at J-Lo. She is, you know, I mean, of course, yeah. she's like a, you know, a unicorn of a human. She's just, you know, <laughs> stunning and glowing and, like, lit from within. But there are so many, you know, I, I'm 51 and, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, you know, still, still got it. Um, you're a foxy chick sure. <laughs> uh, at least my husband says so and that's all that matters <laughs> he's smart he's smart enough uh, he knows he's where got his great taste exactly he knows where his bread is buttered uh, Gina how old are you 52 52 and do, do you feel yeah. different about being 52 at 52 than you did at say 42 I feel a lot calmer I think um, the difference between 52 and 42. I also feel like I don't have 
I, when I was in my twenties, I always thought of this big milestone in my thirties being this deadline. I, de- I looked at my thirties as a deadline. Like I have to be on the track towards some magical goal, you know, like, like when I'm going to find my career, find my path. You know, I, I felt that I remember having this existential crisis, like around the age of 29 and my in-laws were just laughing at me. I mean, my husband and I would go over to their house and lie down on the couch and go, what are we going to do with our lives? <laughs> and, you know, and they're like, first of all, they're Holocaust survivors and they're also extremely successful. They're just like, why don't you just do something? <laughs> you know, because we would just sit around. Anything. Well, I was turning 30 and I had just, I was just starting to leave a multimedia company and the web was just starting to, to happen. Like the web was really just starting to come up like right around the time when I, when I was about to turn 30. So being a content chief was not even a career back then Sure. (laughs) or being, being in the web, being a, being a, um, you know, being a very early.com entrepreneur that wasn't even in the cards back then. Nobody even knew what that was. And so, yeah, we like when we were 29, we're sitting around angsting. By the time we were 40, we we had done a lot in, in, in the dot-com world and, we created companies, we invested in companies. We, we felt like pretty settled by, by the time like when 40 rolled around. But then, we, you know, now we're like panicking that we we're going to become irrelevant by 50, when we just, turn 50. Right. It just yeah. disappears like in a puff of smoke. So tell us about mm-hmm. what you were building and doing in your 30s and 40s. Because I know that you've, um, mm-hmm. the what is not your, your first rodeo. You've been mm-hmm. you know, inventing and building and scaling other companies. Fill us in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my first company was called Splendora, and I I started that company in 1999. Back then, there was no Yelp, and um, yeah, there there weren't a lot of websites online when I when I started. I think there were fewer than a million websites online when I started my company, and there were only a few websites catered towards to women. So there was I think there was women.com and um, another another one another big one, but that there really wasn't anything for us online, and I decided to launch a company that would become like the city search for women. And that was called Splendora. So I raised money. I raised a million dollars pretty effortlessly because that, that was in the wild days of the dot-com where, you know, barbecue.com raised $30 million. Wow. Um, They're passing out money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I raised a million dollars. And then um, the very next week, as I was signing the closing papers, the headline of the New York times said, the dot-com bubble burst. And um, I even thought about returning the money that, that had just hit my bank account because every everybody was, it was total free fall in San Francisco. It was such a panic. Everybody started moving out. Everybody started getting pink slips. Massive companies were folding. And my business partner, Amy Parker, who's who's been my partner for almost 20 years, um, she said back then, she, she was like the most recent hire. And so she said, She's from North Carolina. And she goes, y'all, this is such a good idea. We shouldn't go out of business. We should just keep going. And we, in order to stay alive, and, you know, I was, I raised money on a digital community-based play here. I was going to be this digital, uh, it's so funny that I used the term, the the comp of city search, because that doesn't even really, it's not even relevant anymore. Um, And so we switched to printing books and instead of putting it on the web we we created um a directory in print 
for San Francisco of all the places that you can go. And it was a, it was a printed directory of what we had online. And that's how we, and we sold the, the ads in there and we stayed alive for three years, go, switching from digital to print until digital came back in about 2004, 2005. So and then scrappy. we made an absolute yeah. killing for the next like four years, just a total killing, just going to New York and just sweeping money into our bucket. I love that. <laughs> because by that by that time, the, the marketers in New York had no idea what this digital advertising thing was about, right? Because we were all we were all creating it on the West Coast, and by the time we got to the East Coast, people started panicking, like, "Oh my gosh, I need I need an online presence. I need, you know, we we Dior. I think we back then Splendora. We ran the first digital ad for Dior, um, and it was it was really a big deal for some of these blue chip retail companies to get online because when we first started going to New York to pitch, I remember we went into Prada and maybe, maybe Mark Jacobs. I don't think so. I don't think it was Mark Jacobs, but there were, there were a lot of companies, fashion companies, which just felt like um, they called it the dot-com ghetto and they just didn't want their brand in um, this kind of janky environment. That used, that was the web back in the early two thousands. I remember that web. (laughs) Oh, I remember that really well. <laughs> that web, that web was kind of, you know, there's kind of a return to some of that web. I mean, if you think of Google when it launched, it was a white page with a search box that just said, just said Google. It was like that for a very long time. But there's something so comforting about that um, that it's just, I, you know, I'm totally digressing, but it's it's just interesting to see w- w- how the world has changed in the last twenty years. For me, as a digital entrepreneur, being on the web this whole time, it's been really interesting. And so the fact that I wrote Meet the Perennials at the end of my 40s, after being like this kind of crazy person, like we were, <laughs> the things that we used to do, we, we, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just these pioneering women galloping across the web. And, um, you know, by, by the end of my 40s, when I kind of had figured out, we had built our company, we had sold our company, we had helped build another company, which was a video shopping company called Joyous. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was thinking back on, on my time in, on the web, and I was thinking about this idea of perenniality. Things go away, they come back. You know, publishing was, print publishing was freaking out, and then it started to morph into digital publishing. Now digital publishing is in massive, massive trouble. And now we're going to morph into something next, right? And then, we're, then we morphed into social. Well, social is starting to get into trouble now. What so, social is now leading to community? It's just—it's very—it's just been very interesting. And that whole cycle is a very perennial cycle. Yeah, it's, um, it's and very, I started it's to, very cyclical. And what you're talking about too, but yeah. our, the things that we care about haven't changed. It's just sort of the yeah. method by which we're accessing them have. Mm-hmm. So, so what yeah. what made you launch the what? Did you intend it to be community, or did you intend it to be a newsletter no. or a hybrid? Tell us about the one. No, no I, that, that's a good question. I, no, I, I actually was not even thinking about community whatsoever. Um, I, I was thinking when we launched the what in 2015, my partner Amy and I, we were really honestly just thinking of a way to work together again because we had worked on the previous two companies and had the time of our lives. She, I didn't really know her when, um, when we decided to keep Splendora going and she, she was a hire. She was our biz dev director and then over a period of five years running the company together i made her my partner um and then we 
ran us next to coming together. And then, then we both went our separate ways after the second company. And the what was really a way for us to work together again. And we also felt like there was a lack of content for us out there. And it wasn't really, well, maybe it could have been based on age, actually. Um, now that I've come to think of it. Because when I went to go talk to Brian and Lisa Sugar at Pop Sugar, um, that Brian was telling me, you know, all of our content is geared towards millennials. Now, Brian and Lisa are not millennials. We're we're all around the same age. Like I, they are they are Gen Xers. Like maybe Lisa could be a millennial. I don't even know. But I know that <laughs> Brett, Brian's a Gen Xer, right? So we had all come up in this business together, and Pop Sugar became a hundred percent focused on millennials in two thousand fifteen. I find this so, so mystifying because when you think about the buying power. And the mm-hmm. educated, you know, empowered consumer that w- that mm-hmm. women are, it seems mm-hmm. amazing to me that, that they're not being, you know, they, they, people should be talking about galloping over the web. They should be galloping mm-hmm. our way and giving us what mm-hmm. we need. Mm-hmm. Did the, is the what well, intended? Tell you, so, yeah, so, tell me. So, and then Refinery29, which was started by people our age, right, in their 50s. So by the time, like, Refinery29 was, was, um, I also came up with the Refinery29 people, and I know that Christine was the exact same age as I was um, when we started talking to Refinery29. The thing is that, you know, Refinery29, they revamped to be all about millennials. And the reason why they did goes back to the earlier part of our conversation is because all of the brands said, we are not going to sponsor you unless you are focused on millennials. The reason why the brands thought that is because they were just looking at the data, and the data was was saying that millennials as a group represented the largest generation um the largest generation in the world right so it's like they're a bit way bigger than gen x bigger than the baby boomers right right um but what they weren't thinking of where where it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater like gen x and baby boomers have all the money and we're still here you know, and, and not planning on going anywhere. And to your point right. about even if millennials, you know, I, I'd have to look at the, the numbers, you know, because I don't yeah. quite understand the, the, the you know, the, the, the size count of each one of these these cohorts. But when you look at the, the mm-hmm. lifespan from like 50 to 80 in this sort of sort of maybe mm-hmm. third act stage of your life, it's it's an enormous um, range of time that you're focused on things that we that we might care about, which is. You know, adulting, helping our children adult, paying for college, retirement, caring for our parents, you know, making all these buying decisions, still living vibrant lives where we're like, we just already established that I'm still hot and sexy, right? So I want to make mm-hmm. sure that I'm getting the, the marketing that gives me, you know, the, the cosmetics, the lifestyle, the fashion. It's, it doesn't go away. Do you, has the what stepped into that breach? Tell us about that. Well, yes, I, I the what, it's, it's really cool because we've been surveying our audience and we've been looking at who reads the what and the what has a very perennial audience so we have readers ranging in age from 25 to 85 i mean seriously that's no joke i I, at first i I was looking at the numbers wondering like am i really seeing what i'm seeing but when you start from a place of agelessness or not it's not about category or age. It's it's just really about interest. What do, what are you interested in? What 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 is interesting? M- many interesting things don't have an age attached to it, or a gender, or a race. You know, they're like for instance, I, what I read about last week was um, James Nestor's br- book called Breath, mm. and it's about breathing. 
And it turns out that a lot of us have been breathing wrong if we're breathing through our mouth or if we're breathing in through our nose and out through our mouth. But nose breathing, there's so much research that supports nose breathing in terms of, um, well, especially in times of COVID, that your nose filters air coming into your body. It warms it and it filters it. So you catch a lot more irritants, germs, um, bacteria if you breathe through your nose than if you just open up your mouth and breathe in and out. You also um, are able to retain oxygen longer. But it's, it's things like this, right? It's like, is that, um, is that specifically for old people? No. Is it for, you know? Sure. It, could, could young people benefit from it? Yes. Could athletes benefit that, that from it? So we, we were looking to create content was that wasn't age-specific or gender-specific. It's human specific or, 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 you know, because I think we touched on it's this. Curious. It's, it's curious. It's curious. Human specific. Right. Yeah. The spirit we, of curiosity that that's mm-hmm. not age specific and that I, I have met very, very, you know, 30 year olds who are not curious and, right. and, and, and feel very, um, you know, sort of stuck in their ways or, or just not, they don't have the spirit of growth. And I know that you, you talk a little bit about um, how being a perennial is to be, you know, up against your growing edge, you know, maybe having that growth mindset, which is sort of buzzy. And I don't know how you feel about that word, but what does growing or growth mindset mean to you broadly? And and, and what does it mean to you specifically in your own life? Mm-hmm. Well, growth mindset came from um, the book M- Mindset. Gosh, I really hope I don't get this wrong, but it's <laughs> Carol Dweck, the professor from Stanford, who wrote all about growth mindset. And I had, it, it's interesting. I, I hadn't even read that book before I wrote my article on perennials, but what she describes about a growth mindset of the the attitude of constantly learning, growing, reaching, never feeling like you're dealt a fixed set of skills or that um, you lack possibility or opportunity, but that it's more of a self-selecting process, this growth mindset that you can, that you can grow and you are responsible for your growth. Um, whereas the fixed mindset you might have encountered some people who go, oh, well, she was born to do that, or she's naturally, you know, like there's some kind of natural innate talent, and if you don't have it, then you're not going to be able to do it. Um, and yes, there are plenty of people. Not everybody's a perennial. Um, there are plenty, plenty, plenty of people who either they're 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 on a track to they have a very fixed idea of what life should be like, and they're on a track to achieve it. And once they achieve it they just kind of hold there. They're like in this holding pattern, like, okay, I got this. You know, it's, it's, I, I think that the people who are not perennial and I, I don't blame them, but there's many reasons why a person would not be perennial or really be interested in that. And I think a lot of it has to do with security that for people who really are very uncomfortable pushing themselves out of their, their safety zone, um, maybe perenniality isn't for them because perenniality is all about exploring the unknown and seeing what's possible. And that's really scary for some people. I think there's, um, so, there's, it can be scary for, for, I think it's scary for everybody at different points, but that, mm-hmm. um, th- that you know, if I know for myself, I've been able to push myself beyond things that I that I once felt to be limiting. And I, I, I think that, at least in my experience, um, my age has made me more confident because I my confidence grows from doing and trying. And it's like a muscle that you... You know, if you're willing to be uncomfortable once, it's you're not so uncomfortable the next time, and mm-hmm. you, you know you really can nurture so that you blossom. How are you? How do you practice perenniality in your own life? 
I read a lot. I'm kind of known for my my insane reading habits. So I, when I'm, it's funny. I, I I just put this link together when during COVID. But the more stressed I am, the more I read. So when I'm reading my book a day, and people always ask me how I do that, and I can tell you how I do that if you're really interested. <laughs> but I'll I'll, I'll read curious, a book a day. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's you know anybody seriously anybody can do it. And I'm, I read fiction, so it's a lot easier to read a fiction book a day than it would be to read a nonfiction book a day. Um, just because fiction, you're kind of flowing with it, and and nonfiction, there could be a lot of graphs and charts and dates, and you know, it's not as easy as a read as fiction is or could be. Um, I read, I read a lot. I I learn something. I don't plan it out, but I do learn something new something pretty major once a year. So this year I'm learning how to sail because I read, I read a couple of books on sailing this year that had sailing as a theme. One was sea wife, which was fantastic called by Amity gauge. And the other one was the end of the ocean by Maya Linda. And so I was in love with sailing. So I, I um, signed up for sailing lessons and I'm learning how to sail. And this sounds like, really first world kind of problems or or um goals but it's um anybody can learn anything for free online there there are so many places to learn things now that are totally free there's so many Um, tools one of my recent guests is a um uh, an emerging screenwriter at the age of 60 after a you know, long career in brand marketing. She was at Audible at one point, and she said that she learned a lot about screenwriting from YouTube. You know, we, That's so great. We have Google. She said, I like to see people talking. That's how I process and I learn. And she taught herself a lot about you know, narrative structure and the three-act um, formula that that's quite often used in, in screenwriting. So I agree, you can teach yourself anything. Uh, before we move on, I want to hear about how you read a book a day because I am a librarian's daughter. I read all the time. What you said about fiction, I really related to because I, when I was younger, I remember saying to my mom, like, I don't ever feel like I'm seeing words. I feel like I'm experiencing a movie almost when I read fiction because it feels so immersive to me. But I still mm-hmm, feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, book a day for me would be would be like a big uh, mountain to climb. Tell tell us more about how you do that because I'm really curious. So I, I I created a method that I, I didn't mean to create a method, but it, when I look back on how I'm able to do this, I I, I guess I just kind of did it naturally, and I was very curious about um, how fast I read. So I um, I just I time myself with four different books, reading first one page, then 20 pages, then 40 pages at a time, and seeing how long that took me, and then averaging, um, you know, doing the math to figure out how fast I can read a page. And it turns out that I can read a page, um, a page a minute, pretty much. And I think I asked other people, I I tried this with other people, and it, it seems like that pace is not, that's not speed reading a page a minute it could be because a page usually has about something like 350 words on, on it. Um, so it, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not remarkable that I read a page a minute. Um, and so what I would do is I would just find the books I wanted to read, see how many pages they were, try to figure out if I, how long it would take me to read, how many hours it would take me to read and then find the hours. So you, so typically 
it takes me about five hours to read a 300 and something page book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that I, I read is I, I find two hour chunks at a time, a minimum of two hour chunks at a time to read. And it's just that I find the time to read. So some people go, oh, I, I have no time to read. But that's because they don't want to take time from something else. And if you figure like how, how much you're watching TV. Also, I don't just read before I go to bed and doze off. I go to bed at, I go, get into bed around 9.30 if I know it's going to be a reading night. Um, I read next to a clock. I read with no gadgets around me. That's the most important thing. No distractions. And no distractions at all. And then I also read the very first thing in the morning when I open my eyes. I grab my book and I read it. I do this to prevent myself from reaching for my phone. I think that's the worst way to come into the world is by turning on your phone and looking at it. Um, and so I find that, especially if it's a book that I love, to come into the world through a doorway of a book that you love is so much more peaceful and meditative than looking at your phone and seeing that measles around the rise around the world. You know, that's what I still, I did that one time like this week by accident, the phone was right there and it was going off. So I just happened to pick it up. And so that's what I do. It's like, you can find so much more time to read if you just have your book next to you. So I have my book next to my bed. I, it's the first thing I have, you know, that's such a when beautiful I, way I, to start your day. I I I, I absolutely love that. And, and the point that you made about you can find time for the things that you that you want to be doing. We all, you know, mm-hmm. we can stop, you know, doom scrolling through the news or I fall down mm-hmm. in Instagram mm-hmm. rabbit holes and 45 minutes have elapsed yeah. and and it doesn't need to be that way and and the the things that that matter that ground us that, you know, light us up, we we can and should find time for. Have you been reading any kind of books during the pandemic that are helping? Because this is a rough period of time for for everybody. The country is, you know, really under stress, the globe. Is there any kind of book that's helped you through this time? Because you obviously, you've had a lot, we've had a lot of days of the pandemic and you do do a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot, yeah. Is there one no, or I two think that just, you... I think just um, reading in general, like reading anything has helped me. And I, I, how I find my books, I mean, typically, because I write a book review at, on the what list uh, twice a year. I write my, my spring book review, and usually there are about 20 to 20, 20 to 30 titles that I recommend. So to get 20 to 30 titles, I have to read a minimum of 60 books in order to even come up with 20 that I like. So, so far I've read like 100 and I, I can't, I don't even know how many books I've read definitely more than a hundred and I can't read a book a day, you know, for a sustained period of time. I can, I usually have to stop and then rest for a couple of weeks, um, every four weeks. So every month, like I'll take another half a month off and casually read and then I'll go back to an intense reading schedule again. Um, but I think just reading in general and and finding your sources. So I, I comb through all of the sites with the, with the best the best titles. Like I go on Goodreads and I follow people whose taste I like. I find that Amazon surprisingly is pretty accurate at recommending. They're pretty good at recommending things that I would like based on the authors that I like. And so that's how I find a lot of my books. Um, but. But yeah, the reading has reading has saved me during the pandemic, for sure. 
That's uh, I, I'm absolutely inspired. I, I've been um, I've been reading not at this clip, but it, this is going to make me rethink sort of my calendar and how I prioritize because there's some things I've just let fall off, and I'm I'm going to take this uh, spirit on that if it's if it's meaningful, I can prioritize it. And I should be starting my day with yoga instead of thinking I'm going to get to it at the end of the day. You know, I need yeah. to you need to put it front and center on your calendar. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's one of the reasons why you get out of bed then, because you have something to look forward to, which is amazing. And it sort of, I, I did have a couple times during the pandemic when I'd look at the phone and, and would just like have to brace myself in the morning because the mm-hmm. news was always terrible. So best to start your day with something else. The um, the online community that you've built is is sizable and, and, and dynamic. I Tell us a little bit about how you've been uh, uh, nourishing that during the pandemic, because I think online communities are more critical than ever because it's harder to get that uh, energy from interacting with people because our our worlds have become, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm living on the head of a pin, you know, but my world has become much smaller than it was. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about how you're nourishing your community at this time. Right. So our community, we have we have two communities and our first our biggest community is on Facebook and it's a private Facebook group called the What Women. And then within that group, there are probably seven or eight different subgroups based on city or on affinity group. And, um, it, you know, you had asked me earlier if we had planned on building content and community and uh, we had never thought about building a community, but after sending out, I think we had sent out maybe like 50 newsletters over 50 weeks, we started to reevaluate what we were doing. Um, and we, we just didn't know if we, we were really reaching people other than just looking at how they clicked. So we started this Facebook community and we started it with the question of aside from sex, how, how do you experience pleasure? And we had so many responses. There were only 150 personal friends that started, we started the group with. And by the time we had driven home to our houses, because we were meeting um, for lunch, for a lunch meeting, we had a thousand new signups like women adding women on Facebook, just like adding friends on Facebook. And we were shocked and we had 60 responses to that question. And then later in the week, we had 300 responses to that question. It was, it was, it was so mind blowing to us because we were always these one way. um, We were like an outgoing message Sure. of, you know, your typical media company. I put out the news. I put out what's interesting. Um, And since then the community has grown to 24,000 women in the main group. And probably ten to twelve thousand spread throughout the other groups, and they, women, uh, we, we used to very carefully tend to the community. So we would, uh, you know, we would write prompts like, you know, what are you thinking about today, or what good books are you reading? And now, women are asking questions to each other every single day. Like I, I haven't been on there uh, today, which is unusual. I'm usually on there every single day, but. I go back on there and there's 40 more questions being asked. Anything from it's it's only a women's group. So, but the the topics range um, from the quotidian. So like what kind of, you know, shampoo do you use to really deeply personal things about depression, about divorce and marriage, about sexuality. And it's just beautiful to see all of these strangers support each other and help each other through things and recommend things to each other and so it's the the community has been very very nourishing to us it's that's also helped us get through the pandemic is is watching the way these women treat each other and help each other um and i'm beginning to 
I'm really beginning to see how important community is. Like you were saying, you said you feel like you're on the head of a pin, especially during this pandemic, because you're just not seeing, you're not coming in contact with a bunch of people anymore. Um, it's really cool with our digital community that we have 24,000 women in there who are just, we're seeing them talk to each other. And then if we feel like we want to talk to them and have a question, we put it out there and they answer it. It's, it's, it's really, it's really quite profound. And to see this all happen online where when you think about a whole bunch of people being online, it sounds like the worst possible thing. Like Facebook did not get a great reputation since 2016 for having a bunch of people online. Yes, no, absolutely. But these sort of closed communities, I'm in a few of them. Um, You know, I really do hear what you're saying. And I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who coined this term digital campfires. And I feel you know, these mm. these these digital campfires exist, and I'm I'm in a few of them, and there is such a supportive, um, uh, you know, vibe to the to the space, and it's a it's a chance to be together in ways that are being denied to us right now, and um, I, I do believe one of the silver linings of the pandemic is sort of what you're experiencing in your own Facebook group is the the sort of the collective humanity. I mean, we're all going through this experience together. Everyone's you know, experiencing it differently, but there has been loss for everybody. There, um, you know, some more profound than others. Um, there has been, you know, fear and anxiety. Uh, there have been, you know, the pandemic silver linings. And it's, to me, one of the pandemic silver linings, aside from, you know, extra bonus time with my kids, um, is seeing, which, you know, by the way, is not always a bonus, <laughs> but that that would be one of my silver linings, but is is seeing so many of my business calls start now. How are you doing? Where are you? What's mm-hmm. going on in your community? I've had conversations with people I would never have had, you know, back in February. It has literally changed. The pandemic has changed the way in my experience, that we relate to each other. You know, I saw you, you see stuff online about people getting into fights about masks. I haven't experienced that. I've experienced the, the good stuff. How do you, what do you see for the what moving forward? Because the, the pandemic is still here. Are you looking to grow the community more? Are you looking to continue to do content? What is, what is your vision? Our strategy is content and community. So the community is, is, the community, we draw the community to us with the content. So the content that we put out there curates a certain type of person who'd be a perennial person, right? Yes. So so there are going to be plenty of people who are not interested to hear what we have to say because they are not interested in this kind of perennial content. They're not curious thinkers. They're not, you know, um, and so I, I think what's what's really great for us is that we have the content to curate the community ar- around it. I think community is going to be the next buzzword for brands. So every five years you hear like the buzzwords. This is what brands are all about. You know, like maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was content marketing, content marketing. We have to build content in order to market our product. You know, so I saw somebody who did it really well, actually, was... Um, it was a gym, uh, Equinox. Equinox built this really great site. I don't even know if it's still around, but it was all around health and wellness and this this health and wellness lifestyle, fitness lifestyle. So content marketing was really big, and um, you know, it was all about content marketing. And then it and then it started moving towards you know social. What's your social strategy? Um, and now I feel like it's going to be what's your community strategy, because 
you can advertise all day long on Instagram and it's going to deliver for you. It's definitely going to give you a high ROI based on, you know, your spend. You're going to sell a lot of products based on how much you spend. But the second you turn off that spigot of dollars to Instagram, then what? Like, how are people going to still rally around your brand? Like, where's the campfire, right? And the campfire is going to be in the community. So I feel like the, I think that what's coming up next is that brands are going to be hiring community builders. And yeah, my partner, Amy and I were even thinking, maybe it's time for us to write our book about how to build a community because we unwittingly built our community. And I, and I feel like the magic of our, of building our community was the fact that we had content that people already knew, you know, like I would join, um, a community, uh, for like the Atlantic magazine or for, I don't know, nerds are us or something, but I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) join, um, you know, field and stream. Like that's not in my interest. Right. Right. So I, uh, so I just think that building community for brands, um, is going to be absolutely key in their survival. I love the idea of the accidental community that you talked about too, that you just, you, you did it, you, you built it, uh, organically and authentically by by sharing what you let what lights you up which is um something that do you feel that brands could actually do i think if they it's it's hard for brands to be authentic when they are just you know when their primary goal is to sell their product but i think that there is a way that they can do it because i've i've seen some brands i've seen some brands be successful at it and there are some brands that lend itself based on where, where where they are, like for instance, Nike, right? When you think Nike, you think of athleticism, fitness, right? Serena um, Williams. Yeah. And you, you think of athletes and you think of, you know, being fit. And I, I can see how certain huge brands could build, build a community around the love for fitness or athleticism, or, you know, Starbucks could maybe build a community around coffee or around, you know, I, there, there are some brands that are going to have an easier time building community. But I think brands over the next, I think by next year, 2021, brands are going to be scrambling to figure out how to build community. That's my, that is my prediction. Hopefully they'll connect with you because you've, you've built a wonderful, vibrant community and, and uh, getting the what newsletter in my inbox every week is so much fun. I, I look forward to reading it because you source and surface wonderful, wonderful finds and, um, you know, you you haven't steered me wrong yet. So I want to make sure that our listeners know where to, where can, how can they sign up for the what? All they need to do is go to the whatlist.com and there's a newsletter sign up box there front and center. And is there any, it's as simple as that. It's just, it's free. It comes every Wednesday unless I'm swamped underwater and then I'll come on Thursday. (laughs) Nice. It's it's good to be your own. It's good to be your own boss. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And is there, um, besides the what list, is there any one product or resource that you that you feel like your job is surfacing all these wonderful finds? Is there something special that uh, this week or, the, you know, in the last month that you want to tell our listeners about to f- make sure they don't miss? I mean, I, I think I mentioned it earlier um, in the podcast about the book Breath. That's what we're really into right now by James Nestor. That was a book that we stumbled across about how to breathe. And I think really learning how to breathe and lower your stress level is extremely important during COVID, um, lowering your stress level, but also strengthening your lungs. So I would say our pick from um, this week is is the book Breath. Thank you very much, Gina. Thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Katie. 
This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate your time and your willingness to tune in, and I'd love your help in making the podcast grow. So please leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. If Instagram or Facebook is more your thing, come keep me company over at A Certain Age Pod. Plus, we have show notes and bonus content. I'll link to the what list. I'll link to the breath book. You can find it all on our website at acertainagepod.com. Special thanks to Michael Mancini Productions, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties.